Right, everybody. Well, welcome to the Vegetable Beat. This is a live weekly roundtable discussion, also available as a podcast for um, vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. It's every Wednesday at 1130 Central, 1230 Eastern. My name is Ben Whirling, and I'll be your host today. I'm from MSU. Mike Ranke is our um, faithful Zoom engineer who keeps the gears running. Um, with me today is Dr. Cheryl Truman of the University of Guelph's Ridgetown campus. And Cheryl, among the many things she does, gets to work with processing tomato growers. Our topic today will be bacterial diseases of tomato from cradle to crate. Had to get some alliteration in there. Um, <laughs> For those of you who are certified crop advisors or um, Michigan pesticide applicators and who are listening live, credits are available for today. If you would like those credits, please put your name and email um, into the chat. We also want your questions. Um, If you're listening via Zoom, put those questions in the Q&A box. If you're joining us via Facebook Live, um, please put them in the comment section. and we will address those as we go and, and also at the end. Um, so Cheryl, I'm, I'm really glad to have you um, with us today. Um, aside from getting to know someone new um, in the field of vegetables, which is always interesting, I'm glad to have you because bacterial diseases just sometimes seem so frustrating. They're causing yield loss, but there's it's like, what can we do about them? We can't, we don't have our normal complement of fungicides. Um, so in the tomato world, I know that there are three main bacterial diseases, speck, spot, and canker. And to be honest, they kind of look the same, all look the same to me. So I, I, was, I wanted to ask you, do they act the same or do they, how do they have the same similarities in personality and how might they be a little different from each other? Sure. Thanks, Ben. Um, so yeah, so I'll, I can give you a little bit of background information on, on each of those and maybe a few tips on telling them apart. Um, oh, also, you know, most of our work at Richtown um, research-wise has been on bacterial spot. So I'll start with that one. You know, and so bacterial spot is caused by a group of xanthomonas species. So like I'm in Ontario, Canada, and we have our primary one is xanthomonas gardneri, but we know that there's also xanthomonas perforans huh. around. So depending on where you're located, the group of species might differ. Huh. Um, so that that's one thing about spot there. Huh. It can be seed borne um, and bacterial spot uh, will live as, as an epiphyte um, before it causes an, an infection in a tomato plant. So um, huh. basically what that means is that the bacteria can live on the surface of the, of the leaf until it reaches a certain population and then it can oh. infect the plant. So either through wounds um, uh-huh. which is important to think about in terms of transmission and spread within uh-huh. a field or a greenhouse, but also um, through the plant stomata. Uh-huh. Um, so, and um, xanthomonas likes warm and wet uh, conditions. Um, often with bacteria, we think about like moisture, um, so, so wet. Uh-huh. And um, in Ontario, at least, uh, it's not thought to overwinter. So um, okay. that some research by my uh, predecessor at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada showed that that didn't seem to be a really important pathway of, for uh-huh. an inoculum in a given year. And um, I know at, in Ohio, Sally Miller had a, a PhD student a few years ago now who did look at overwintering and they, I believe they didn't think that it was an important pathway huh. there. So talking about inoculum primarily coming, suspected to come from through seed. 
Um, bacterial spec is caused by a different uh, type of um, bacteria, but it's it's got a lot of similar characteristics okay. as spot. So um, we tend to see more bacterial spec show up in when it's a bit cooler. So oh, like interesting. cooler temperatures than um, the anthemonis. And we do know that it can overwinter in Ontario. Huh. Um, and, I you know, know I can say you can't really visually tell the difference between set spec and spot, uh, especially on tomato leaves, um, the lesions that appear in the leaves. On fruit, the lesions of spot will tend to be larger, and um, some xanthomonas will fairly large lesions that kind of crack open. Um, huh. Whereas speck will just be like a raised kind of scab and much smaller, and like a okay. dark brown. Um, and then canker, like canker, I've worked with less, um, but uh -huh. we also know that canker is seedborne. Um, and the kind of some things that make canker a bit different uh, is that it. It can, I guess, first of all, it can, you can have primary like systemic infections okay, um, and then secondary infections. So when there's primary infections, you see, you see, uh, wilt, you see discoloration of vasculature. Oh, got it. Um, and then what we tend to see in field tomatoes though, is the secondary infections where you get, um, some kind of burning on, especially on the leaf edges. Um, and then uh -huh. canker on the fruit will be, there'll be like a bird's eye spot. Um, it's kind of like a whitish um, color and circular. Um, and then what's interesting about canker is that the causal agent can actually survive on surfaces. Um, depends on the type of surface, but like at least for four months. Oh, wow. Um, and then it also survives in residue for pretty long periods. So like at least two years. In, in two process. years. Yeah. Wow. So, so that's a little bit more unique. Um, like I mentioned, it's rare for us to see primary infections in, in field tomatoes in Ontario. Um, it's usually more of a greenhouse production like pr problem because there's so much more manual labor. Um, Got it. Uh, but we do occasionally see that. I've seen it once. So it sounds like there's some commonalities in the source. Um, prim most are primarily seed burn, but once, once you get past that, there's, there's some notable differences in, in how they get into the plant and how they um, persist or don't persist. So they are definitely different, even though they're all bacteria. Yes. <laughs> um, shows what I know, I'm an entomologist. If it, <laughs> um, but so you mentioned about, you talked about persisting on surfaces and that, um, that reminds me about, you know, kind of as we've been through this pandemic, we've learned more about epidemiology and about how, if you know how something spreads, maybe you got a chance of slowing it down. So we're talking about spreading on surfaces and that maybe that spreads different ways too. But what have you learned about kind of starting from the seed and going out to the field, how, um, and specifically bacterial spots, since that's what you know best, how does that um, pathogen um, move from being a tiny, a tiny problem to a big problem? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and, you know, bacterial diseases are hard to manage. And so these are important questions to yeah. ask. I think when you're trying to narrow down, like, and thinking as a grower, like, what are some critical points that I can try and control here? Because with bacterial diseases, there's, there's a lot of things that we can't control. Yeah. Um, so, so 
I think if we start thinking about in the greenhouse situation where you've got high density of plants, um, like so for example, in Ontario for processing tomatoes, we typically use a tray size of 288 cells. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't know that how that will relate to some, like the audience today, um, but that's fairly dense. There, you can, can go even denser. Um, and so we're thinking about in terms of spread in the greenhouse, you know, every time those plants are watered, if you have a population on the leaves, then their bacteria is on the leaves, okay? And it could be there without you even seeing it if it's at that epiphytic stage where the population isn't quite high enough yet for that infection to occur, we just see symptoms. So I think one oh. thing is kind of just assume that you that you always might have a problem, <laughs> you know, that might I be see. comforting, but you assume that in your management. And then, you know, I think in the greenhouse where we really think about is the movement of water and uh-huh. how water can move the bacteria. And so uh-huh. this isn't like, so I've done some work on transmission and a little kind of the later stages of production, but in the greenhouse, like I haven't looked at that, but there was just a really interesting paper that came out from Gary Valid, Valid's group okay, in Florida. Yeah. And they, he had a graduate student who looked at that spread in a seedling production system, like similar to processing tomatoes where you have really high density of plants. And, and they looked at um, with an overhead irrigation system, like a boom track system, Uh how is that moving? And, you know, I think the bottom line, you know, it's not my work, but from, you know, looking at the research and hearing about it, there's Uh things like that from a a point, a center point where you have that bacteria, it can move one to three meters away from there, depending on like the environmental conditions. So, you know, how much water, humidity, those kinds Uh of things. Um, And it can move, so it moves in those aerosols that are in in the air. Splashing water? Splashing water, even like tiny droplets, right? Okay. And so, you know, so then it comes into thinking about water management, right? And then as a secondary thing, you know, is thinking about touching and wounding of the plant. So um, if you touch those wet plants, then you have bacteria on your hands, right? And then if you go to another part of the greenhouse, you're potentially moving that around, okay? Um, and, and again, any equipment. And then if you're if the plants are being wounded or damaged in any way, then that just makes it easier for the bacteria to get inside. Got it. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the greenhouse part. And then if we kind of move along like this production system, uh-huh. those plants go from the greenhouse to the field. So uh-huh. some work that we started a few years ago um, was, you know, after we had a bad outbreak in Ontario, we sat down with the seedling growers here and kind of talked about uh-huh. different steps. And then we got to thinking about, okay, if you guys do like your job as best you can, then what happens uh-huh. next? And so our in our situation, the field growers are coming with their big trailers to pick up their plugs, uh, plug uh-huh. trailers, and they're going into like a, a, sh- a trailer. So locally, it would be like, uh, where the racks get put on and you have like a stack of like four uh-huh. racks on top of each other. And then there's a tarp that goes around that. Uh-huh. So, you know, when we were talking about this, I'm sitting there like a plant pathologist, like, hmm, we stack all these <laughs> together and then there's like high moisture, high humid environment. And then you might, if the grower is delayed in planting because the field conditions are not quite right, they might have to water those plants and then they wrap a tarp around it. I'm thinking <laughs> if I was running a trial and trying to get to that, <laughs> that is what I would do. Like exactly what we do if we're incubating plants after we inoculate them. Huh. So we got to thinking like, 
okay, let's look at that a little bit closer. Um, and, and so what we did at Richtown was we, we built like a mock trailer, which is basically a shelving unit. And we put uh-huh. a, a tray at the top of that shelving unit that had um, bacterial spot symptoms. And we put healthy trays underneath. And then uh-huh. we irrigated that. And then we looked, we irrigated it from the top to the bottom, from the bottom. Of the uh-huh. And then we had a control where we irrigated, but it was a healthy tray at the top. And then we had another uh-huh. treatment where we took those trays and instead of irrigating them in the trailer, we put them in a dip where the, so the huh. food didn't get wet, but then the water was soaked up from underneath. And then we looked at symptom development. So basically what we found was when you had a, a minute stack, whether irrigated top to bottom or bottom to top, and this was a graduate student in assignments work, but you said you had um, spot symptoms develop in all of those racks, like all the way to the bottom. It was a great um, way to spread it. Yeah, it was excellent way to spread it. <laughs> we still had um, some symptoms develop in the dip treatment. Um, and some <clears throat> growers in Ontario will do this. They have basically like a wagon that's that they can kind of flood and put the trays in that way instead of irrigating them in the trailer. We oh, saw interesting. some symptoms in that situation, but it was less than interesting. In, the, in the stack. And huh. one reason why we might have still seen symptoms there was because we dipped them and then we we still put them back into the racks right away. And so maybe there was some dripping in water. Sure. Um, so, so that's something to think about at that stage where the plants are moving to the field, you know, limit uh-huh. their kind of transportation. Think about the environmental conditions. Like what does the bacteria like? It likes wet and warm conditions. That's where it's going to spread more. Right? Interesting. Um, and then also it's- think about like how dirty is that trailer? doing loads or picking up plants from different uh-huh. like, um, in the processing tomato situation here, you know, the growers that grow the seedlings are different in general uh-huh. than the growers that are growing the plants. So uh-huh. it's not all contained within the same like farm or system. Uh-huh. And they might be picking up plants from various different greenhouses. So there's okay, gotcha. more opportunities for cross-contamination. Oh, gotcha. And then, yeah. So then we can move along from the, that, the shipping part um, to uh, to uh, sorry my chat box just popped up. <laughs> we move along to then the um, like the transplanting stage. One thing that we hadn't really considered before, or what and what we wondered was like, could we be transmitting or like vectoring essentially the bacteria during that transplanting stage. So, you know, the common, most common method here for transplanting is still with like a carousel transplanter Uh where every, that someone is pulling every single plug Uh into the carousel. So if you had a tray at the beginning of the day that Uh had spot um, in your hands, you know, if you're not washing your hands or whatever, and are you spreading that or is it spreading on the the actual transplanting? Uh So we did some indoor experiments where we ran um, symptomatic plants through the transplanter. Uh-huh. And then we followed that with healthy transplants, either uh-huh. wet with wet foliage or dry. And then we incubated those. And then Tina, like we didn't see any symptoms develop, but then Tina did like a leaf wash and was able to actually find bacteria present on the leaves after they went through the transplanter. Uh-huh. Um, so that leads us to believe that probably at least for a short period, we don't know the length of time, but for at least a short period, like the same day that the bacteria can transmit on the surfaces of the tree. Okay. So another thing 
to consider in terms of possibilities of ways it can spread. And then if we move into the field, you, you no longer have control over the environment. Uh-huh. And so the really big driving factors in the field for spread are um, like wind and driving rain, let's say. Uh-huh. We often see outbreaks in the field here in Ontario after we get those like summer thunderstorms where the uh-huh. driving rain and loss of wind and, and the plants are being damaged then too. And then, you know, Got it. seven to 10 days later, my phone will ring and say like, <laughs> got a big problem here. <laughs> and at that time, it's really hard to do anything about, about it. Yeah. And then, gotcha. you know, I think in the field situation that the people touching part is probably relatively minor because at least we're processing tomatoes. We don't have all that labor in there. Uh-huh. So there's some labor, but yeah, not to the same degree. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Thanks, Cheryl. That's really interesting. So there's a lot of points you could manage at to try and reduce spread. Um, and maybe I'll just, I'll back up and go kind of to each point. Um in the greenhouse, you talked about irrigation water splashing being a major source, and then perhaps rough handling. Um, um, well, let me just ask it this way. If there were one or two things you would tell someone growing um, transplants, what would you tell them to do? Yeah, so so uh, I, I'd say, you know, one thing that I learned actually from an entomologist few years ago when they're talking about IPM and I thought, but I thought this was such a great way to frame it when we're talking about integrated, whether it's pest management, like insect management or disease management is like the planning and preparation stage of the uh-huh. work, right? And so it's, maybe it's too, like if you're growing seedlings, like you probably already started them by uh-huh. now, but yeah. looking back at those winter months and in, in the planning and preparation is coming up with a plan of like, how will I mitigate the risk? in the greenhouse uh-huh. because there's some things you can control and some things you can't like uh-huh. um and, and so picking what you can and and a few years ago that's basically when we had our last outbreak in Ontario that was really bad in processing tomatoes uh-huh. we were asked um the Omafra extension ex- uh um, specialist at the time Janice LaBeouf and I were asked to sit down with the seedling growers who were contracted to grow processing tomatoes and we went through like their protocol and we were able to make some updates and just come up with a plan and we highlighted in there like this is the stuff that everyone should be able to do and this is the stuff that you could do if you if you if you can right and so I think reviewing that um is beneficial um it gets everyone in that mindset of what you know, having and keeping it top of mind. But then, you know, once the production starts, I think, yeah, thinking about the the movement of water and when do you need to irrigate and really limiting um, the, the leaf wetness periods as much as possible. Okay. Like, usually means irrigating in the morning so that those leaves yep. are to dry, right? Got it. Um, and then uh, I think excluding the pathogen in the first place from the greenhouse is uh-huh. important. So usually that's going to be at least for for spot, it'll be thinking about seed sources, asking those questions like, you know, uh-huh. how is the seed produced? <laughs> Where, what, uh-huh. what, how is it treated? Like, do you have a plan in place? You know, all uh-huh. ask those questions. And sometimes that information can be hard to find, but you uh-huh. know, the pressure on <laughs> to, to find yeah. that information. Um, and then, um, yeah, you know, and then things like limiting touching um, and cleaning keeping everything clean you know uh-huh. sanitizing the surfaces that you can sanitize starting with a clean greenhouse and um limiting touching and wounding as much as you can within reason um 
and, and yeah. And then when, if you think you have, do you have a problem um, getting it properly diagnosed? Um, and uh-huh. then, um, you know, and we talk about roguing plants and I, uh-huh. I fully understand that sometimes that's a difficult decision. Sometimes, you know, so many plants, you know, contract, uh-huh. et cetera. But um, I think the work that was recently done in Florida that I talked about earlier about the distance that they can spread, at least gives some guidelines on if you're going to rogue, how many plants you need to take out. Huh. So, so, gotcha. So, yeah, that's more than one or two things, Ben. But No, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you talked about no... Um, know as much as you can about your seed source. And then I'm um, even briefly touched on maybe even cohorting, like keeping. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you have seed from multiple seed suppliers, you know, if you're growing multiple varieties or from different lots, depending on the size of your operation, considering like, can you cohort those? Like, can you put them in different bays? Um, just, and it, if you've got peppers, so peppers can also host Santamonas. Uh-huh. So, you keep the plant species apart, like those kinds of considerations. So you have to look at your particular situation and what might work, but keeping in, in mind, like those basic concepts of like. Got it. So seed source kind of spreading your risk, um, irrigating in the morning and, and minimizing handling could, could all help in the greenhouse. Um, we, I want to talk about sanitizing in a minute, but I, I first want to address a question that's in the Q&A box because it's a question <laughs> I've had too. And it's, re- it's, it's about field production, but it's relevant to the greenhouse too. And that question is, um, would you recommend copper sprays in the field to control spread? Um, yeah, so that's a great question. I guess my, my, very sh- my short answer with getting into all the details is that in Ontario, like we've really backed away from recommending copper applications in the field for bacterial spot and spec. And that is because um, we know that there's been copper resistant populations in the past found in Ontario. Um, uh-huh. And with efficacy trials done at Ridgetown, the benefits are very inconsistent. And when we do see a benefit, it's usually only with foliage, we don't see that translate into yield benefit or okay. um, wow. change in incidence on fruit in processing tomatoes. And I've also helped growers in the past do strip trials on their own operations where they left a strip without copper in the field. Huh. You know, one grower in particular had like seven or eight fields and left strips. And, you know, we toured around and looked at these and you could not like wow. the difference either. So um, you know, that's more on the anecdotal side, but I think was pretty telling. So if you are a grower and you're wondering about this, then, you know, my number one suggestion is to leave an untreated strip in your field or vice versa, just have a copper treated strip, like one sprayer track and, um, and see, do you, can you tell the difference? And we really, we couldn't. So we have occasionally seen difference in defoliation and foliage, but when it comes to yield, huh. Um, we don't see that benefit. So, so I do think it's an individual decision, but um, it's, uh, it's definitely not, you know, you just do not get the effect that you do with like a standard fungicide for early blight or late blight or something like that. And that's what's so frustrating. And that's why I know yeah. you're doing a lot of work on other things that folks can do, which aren't often as easy, but well, maybe less costly in a way, but um, yeah, I, I think you, one way to look at it, and, you know, when I've talked to growers in Ontario about this is, you know, look at how much does it cost you to apply the copper 
and the time, like the time required of the cost, because if, uh-huh. if you have a chance of making it work, you have to go in early and you have to go in often or it's yeah, really weekly. Not beneficial for sure. Yeah. So, you know, weekly applications beginning like a week after transplanting. Like, yeah. That's what I mean by early and often. And, and so look at all that cost versus if you can implement some of these other measures, like there's a cost there too, right? Of time. It's a busy time of year transplanting. And, but can, do you change your efforts, right? Or do you, do you change your efforts to, to focus on some other aspect of benefiting your production that will make those plants more resilient kind of thing? Like, um. Um, I wanted to, um, so you've looked at some pinch points, so to speak, um, for cleaning and sanitizing. Could you identify a few spots where you feel like growers have made some headway by implementing a cleaning and sanitizing program? And then, um, or what's a practical approach to it? Yeah, so the, the growers that I've worked with, you know, they try to make sure they start with a clean greenhouse. Um, you know, they'll, they'll, and when we talk about cleaning and sanitizing, the cleaning part is really important because most disinfectants are not effective if there's grime, like organic matter there, deactivate them. Um, and so, you know, that's, and they're starting with clean materials, like um, new plug trays, or they're, they're making sure their seating line is clean, like that everything starts clean. I'm not really sure how much, um, you know, cleaning and disinfecting they're doing during the production cycle, I think, as they can, but it is hard it's harder to implement those things in a lot of different directions. Yeah. Um, So I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about using, um, I know this wasn't in the questions I forwarded you necessarily, but (laughs) (laughs) um, can you make any headway with bactericides in the transplant house and, and what would be a good basic strategy there? Yeah. um, We did some testing of various things like, well, quite a few years ago now. And, you know, I would say like it's more difficult to find effective products because you have a situation where this the environment for the spread of bacteria so is so conducive. So it's really high pressure situation. Um, we do still kind of include copper. You know, if you're going to use copper, then this is how to use it. Like, you know, five day interval and, and following all those label directions really closely. Um, you know, I don't know if the return on investment is there, but um, if it, you know, relatively low cost, I think maybe it doesn't hurt, but I think the really Uh important thing is like, don't rely on that. Like these other things are really important because you're Uh already, you're already starting from behind, like, and copper save you. Sometimes I call these things like a fair weather friend, like they, Uh they in the field anyway, like it might look okay in a year where you don't have a lot of wet, wet, rainy conditions that are conducive for spread. But in a year where like you really need them to help you, they're maybe not really there. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, gotcha. So I don't, you know, I, I think again, like doing a test, and uh, I mean, I guess that's harder to do in transplant situations. Uh-huh. Plants polluted with bacterial spot than it would be you should probably yeah. be them in the field, but, but yeah. <laughs> so that's, I guess that's what I would say about copper. Like we've talked about it with our group kind of annually and it's still in there and some processors I think may still kind of request that that be used. But I think you just have to understand that it has its limitations of what it can do. Yeah. So copper as a bactericide is definitely <clears throat> limited. Mm-hmm. I know in the U S we still can use strep in the greenhouse. 
Yeah, I can't really comment too much on strep because we definitely are not allowed to use it here. <laughs> but I would say um, you're like there, but there are there you will be selecting for a resistant population. So yeah. So, but what you're saying is, um, and we were talking about this before we started the show, that how quick a gen, how quickly bacteria reproduce. So. Um, that it sounds like you got to do more than one thing to try and contain it. You can't rely on any one thing that makes sense. Um, Well, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Cheryl, for being with us today. Um, I, um, if we can, maybe we will put your um, kind of the, the prioritize to do list um, (laughs) in the chat. Um, And I can take care of that in a a second here, but um, yeah, we really appreciate your time with us today. Um, thank you for sharing some of what you learned. Um, and I, I hope that your season keeps, hope it keeps getting better. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I hope everyone's season is better. Yeah. Yeah. I hope all our listeners have a, have a good season too. Um, so folks, if you would like um, RUP or CCA credits, please put your name and email either in the Zoom chat or in the Facebook comments. Um, Mike, did we have any questions in the Facebook Facebook comments before I move on? It's okay. Okay, we don't. Well, very good. Um, oh, and we got it. This is like when you say goodbye to someone and you see them again, Cheryl. Uh, <laughs> we we did have another question. So, um, and that's good. This ties into our last show. Um, the question was about any other in-season reactions that could be useful. So previous guests on our show recommended regalia and copper and macazeb all mixed together in a nice cocktail and applied weekly. Um, and I don't know if you've had experience with that or not, but. Um, yeah. So is this, in, do you think this is in the field or in the greenhouse? I, um, this in the, field. in the field or in a, in a hoop house, in the field or in a hoop house. So in production. Yeah. Um, so I think we tested copper and regalia uh, several years ago, but I do not remember if it was tank mix or alternating. Um, gotcha. So yeah, I think I'm not going to, <laughs> I'm not going to say. That's sure. okay. Um, but I can uh, direct the, uh, like I've got on, on vegetables.com, there's an article there that has kind of a table that summarizes like all the different combinations of things that we've looked at and what the effect was, or if we didn't see an effect. So maybe that's a resource we can share. Um, because if we've tested that, it would be in that team. Okay. Yeah. And now that I opened up a can of worm again, before, before we go, I should ask about Actigar just because it's been mm-hmm. something that I've been confused about. Do you use it? <laughs> do you, should you not? When should yeah. you use it? Um, has, is there any benefit to it or is it kind of like copper? Yeah. So um, we did a bunch of work on Actigard several years ago. And I think, you know, the combination that I liked was copper plus Actigard, like a week, weekly applications. And like with like kind of, I think it was eight, six or eight applications. And then we did see some benefits there. Um, so I'd say, you know, the trending towards better than just copper. Um, and um, yeah, so, so that's a combination that I, I'm pretty comfortable with. Um, okay. but you know, again, you're not always going to see a yield benefit. Um, and so it depends what, you know, what your goals are. Uh, and we, and on like in Canada, we don't have access to ActiGuard anymore. So I haven't got it. it. So it'd be, yeah. Got it. 
that there there can be some effect. Um, Got it. Yeah, you know, I will say in terms of because the questions are all kind of about products, I will say <laughs> time, like you can't forget the other aspects. And if you have weather conditions that are really conducive to your bacterial disease, like it's going to spread. And um, so, yeah, I mean, he's thinking about the stuff that you can control and you can't control, like we're doing field production of tomatoes. You can't control the weather. And that's something that's going to drive the spread of this disease. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's something to keep in mind. And okay. I do know there's growers here that have, have stopped spraying copper or anything for bacterial disease. And they're just kind of focusing on the stuff that they can control and focusing on things like early blade and late blade and those Got programs it. for those things. So. Or maybe their investment will pay off more. Yeah. So yeah. Then, got it. Yep. And yeah, do a strip trial <laughs> with an untreated check. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, that sounds good. It sounds like thinking about your seed source, thinking about um, where you grow your plants and how you grow them in the greenhouse and then cleaning and sanitizing at those pinch points where um, something is contacting multiple plants like hands or a transplanter or um, and thinking about watering that those are they're all pieces of a puzzle that set you up to do the best you can. And then you just hope <laughs> like in farming yeah. you. Yeah. And that's something that's hard to accept about bacterial diseases in the field, right? Like there is really only so much we can do um, once they're outside. Got it. Okay. Which is tough. It's tough to say and it's tough to, to swallow, right? But sometimes doing nothing is is uh, a better return on investment. <laughs> yeah. I like that quote. Maybe <laughs> I probably shouldn't frame it and put it in my office though. Probably not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe okay. it's not doing nothing, but doing something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we did have um, one last question. Are there any varietal, is there any varietal tolerance to these bacterial diseases? Uh, so, yeah, I can, I will just answer in terms of processing. Those, you know, that's, we have done some comparisons and we did start to see like there seems to be some differences in tolerance um, or resistance. And, you know, we're not really sure. I don't know if we really understand it that well, but nothing dramatic, I'd say. Um, There's work that has been done in Florida, at the University of Florida, where they've like had that in in fresh market tomatoes um, more, but I don't really feel like I should, I'm not, you know, an expert on on that. Um, But, uh, but yeah, Genetically modified tomatoes would go a long way to help with bacterial disease management. It sounds like it sounds like the fruits of conventional breeding have. It's not like verticillium or or one of those diseases where there's real resistance from conventional breeding. There is a resistance for bacterial spec for one race of bacterial spec um, that's available. Um, So that's another thing. And yeah, in terms of canker, I don't know for for field tomatoes i see yeah maybe something for spot something for spec for sure and not sure about canker yeah so yeah it's definitely like you said it's not like with some other other pathogens where there's you know well-defined resistance genes black and white yeah and and of course because bacteria reproduce so quickly if you had thank you again cheryl for your time (laughs) with us today um oh Oh, you're just kind of froze there, Ben. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. 
that might be better. Um, it's not, it's not you, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, thank you again for your time today, Cheryl. We really appreciate it. No problem. Okay. Um, hopefully we will talk to you again. Um, and just as a quick refresher for our listeners, if, if you need those CCA or RUP credits, please put your name and email in the chat or Facebook comments. Um, next week, we're going to be um, talking um, about um, alternatives to plastic mulch and thinking about cover crops between rows and beds and w- what can you do, what works, and, and we'll provide a benefit. Um, <clears throat> this um, today's show is sponsored by the North Central IPM Center, North Central Integrated Pest Management Center, um, and we really appreciate you joining us. Um, I did just want to share a word from a, a quick sponsor. Um, so we've been seeking sponsors for the show, and um, one of the sponsors is a new show that's um, that's just recently been on air. Um, they asked us to play a, a little clip as a teaser for you. Welcome to The Produce Aisle, the talk show where we harvest perspectives from the right and left vegetable displays. I'm your host, Roma Goodness. Today's show, sanitizing and cleaning to limit bacterial diseases of tomatoes. Perspectives from the left and right of the transplant wagon are guests, Red Deuce, and Blue Beach. What are your thoughts, Red? Listen, we know that dirty steaks, flats, and poor greenhouse sanitation all add up to increased risk of bacterial disease. We know it, but this is a free-range greenhouse. It's what makes us great. We gotta trust tomato plants to do what's right. We don't need the overreaching greenhouse manager making these decisions for us. And if we spend all our time sanitizing, how in the world will we even get out and grow? If my fruit gets all spotty and I die, that's on me. It was my choice, not the greenhouse manager's. Blue Beach, what's your response? Well, look, it's in the common interest to clean and sanitize surfaces that could contribute to spread. We need swift, prompt action to halt disease spread before it starts. A quick, top-down approach is needed with strong action to protect the common good. Yes, you may never get planted out in the field, as there's a lot of sanitizing and cleaning to do, but at least you'll be disease-free. It's the right thing to do. Well, it looks like our guest did a lot of prevaricating without reaching any conclusions again. That's a wrap for yet another inconclusive episode of The Produce Isle. I guess at least they got to yell at each other. Have a good night. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Cheryl. We've just been trying to have some fun with some silly stuff. Um, we hope you have a, a good rest of your day. And that definitely didn't reflect on you. you um, I really enjoyed talking with you. Um, just blowing off some steam about the political climate sometimes. Um, um, well, have a good week, everybody, and have a good growing season. And we will enjoy talking with you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Bye.